Your semiotics are weak, old man. <laughs> the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our guest today, we do want to throw out, we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Do consider throwing us a buck to help offset these uh, these costs, man, these production costs. We have Phoebe Kaufman joining us today, and we're going to be looking at The Wolfman's Magic Word, a Cryptonomy. And this is a text by Nicholas Abraham and Maria Turok, or Turok. I've been calling it Turok. <laughs> It would definitely help, I think, for listeners or people that are interested to take a look at Brunswick's supplement as well, to just to kind of fill in some of the specifics of the case that Abraham and Turok pose. But before we get into like the meat of the episode, just wanted to give Phoebe a, a chance to introduce herself and tell us what she's got going on and, and why we brought her on the day. Thank you. Hi, I'm Phoebe, <laughs> longtime listener, first time caller. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, Love that. Thank you. I think I was I was just talking about how the first time I read the Wolfman's Magic Word, it was kind of it was kind of I was going backwards in in the Wolfman's trajectory. I had read Avital Ronell, which led me to Derrida, which led me to Abraham and Tarot, which led me to the Wolfman and Freud. So I I'm really into my friends make fun of me because I'm really into holes. As a theory, I'm really gaps. into like, a th- yeah, holes and gaps and wounds and just nice. openings. That's why I'm into the Wolfman. The crypt, the crypt is a really fascinating topographical architectural thing to me. Um, and I, I also have a podcast. It's called Money Can't Buy You Class. It's about reality television, specifically Real Housewives and Kardashians and Vanderpump Rules. Uh, kind of read through social theory. So that's what I'm about. Welcome. Thank you for for coming. And I do think that that I definitely need to take a listen because I think that just the idea itself is nice and intriguing. You know, the sort of meshing the high brow and the low brow, right? If you want to call it that, or or oh yeah, you know, it's, love it's, that kind of. Approach I mean, that's sure. it. Definitely fills a fills a niche that I don't think is necessarily something that that one. I mean, it sounds unique, and and so definitely we'll we'll check that out. And we're glad to have you on, and um, we're glad to both to keep talking about Wolfman and <laughs> and to end the saga of the Wolfman. But yeah, I, I I'm I'm excited, and I think it is it is cool to to note the reverse trajectory back to Freud, you know, because which sort of aligns with our own journey too, mm-hmm. having started Antiedipus already and then coming back to Freud. We kind of did something sort of the similar stereotypically male approach is the 
exegesis or like the little our own little case study on on swamp thing as the sort of typical masculine or geeky male equivalent to to reality oh, I see TV. What you're yeah. You're you're saying that we did we did our own kind of we did, we, did, we the comic book standing in yeah. for the reality right TV. Yeah, we did our little analysis of swamp thing so we we can um, empathize with bridging the the high and the low, right? Now, I think something that's kind of interesting is the Wolfman, or I feel like there was a bit of the text discussing how the Wolfman in particular, the Wolfman's creation consists of elaborating an, an oeuvre, explicitly verbal as well as somatic, that refers to the words used to describe the alleged event without, however, conferring any truth value upon them. This procedure, called variously crypt, cryptonomy, or the broken symbol, resolves the following dilemma. How to live without saying yes or no to reality or fiction while continuing to refer to both. So the reason that I bring this up is, is to me, super interesting in the context of the comic book because it does, the comic book in its sort of formal structure is sort of a quilting point between the symbolic and imaginary. And I sort of think that maybe this little quote is kind of getting at that same sort of liminal space, you know, with brackish water where salt water meets fresh water. And there's that sort of, you can even like see it. Let's say you're diving in a cave. You can kind of see where salt water confronts fresh water. And due to that, you know, the different chemical composition, et cetera, there's this sort of blurry, there's a distinct visual representation of that. And so... I don't know, I felt that there was kind of an interesting little note there in terms of this saying no to re- yes or no to reality and fiction and kind of walking that knife's edge of those two two things. I don't know if that draws out any thoughts from either. No, of I like that image. Phoebe, do you, do you want to respond first? It's fascinating to me that you, you're thinking about that as, as an image of the water because I think that I definitely... I think that the easiest way that I've kind of come to terms with the Wolfman and and the Wolfman's magic word, like the, the theory ascribed to it, is through the Derridian introduction. I definitely think that it there's a relation there to an architecture, obviously. But I and I also I also I don't know, just like in, in, in the last part when you're talking about fiction or reality and walking the line between between the two of them, I almost want to think of like fiction and reality as as layers. I want to think of them as like lenses in which you're seeing it instead of like necessarily the binary that Freud kind of throws on them. And I think that there's a lot of tension in all the texts that we've read today between not only did it happen or did it not happen, but what are the consequences of misremembering, of making it a fiction? What happens if something is fiction, but is actually reality? Or like what happens if it's reality, but you've misremembered it and then going forward, it it becomes this fiction? in the Wolfman's magic word, Tarok and Abraham are both kind of like, we never knew the guy, we never knew the Wolfman. So the way that we're reading him is almost as if he is a a literature. We're reading him as a fiction. That's what comes to mind as a response to what you were just saying. Definitely. And I think that it's kind of interesting that it's funny without Taylor having referenced the Brunswick addendum to the case. When I first encountered the Tarok and Abraham text, I was like, are they doing this kind of sort of an English sort of 
this quasi-fictional, making these fictional leaps from the case itself. But then when I'm, once I read the Brunswick addendum, then it kind of made, okay, they're draw Because I was kind of confused on where the sort of new material was being derived from in the discussion of the case. Because there was a lot of stuff that Freud hadn't directly addressed. And I've right. not read the Wolfman's own work here. So it was and a little bit confusing. You actually don't need for this work to to read his biographical stuff. As right. fascinating as it is. They, they refer to it late in the, the book by kind of saying how it's, it's almost a tragic in its normality, right? In terms of just it's, there's almost something wistful about it. I, I read a little bit of his stuff, you know, like his recollections on Freud. That's kind of interesting, which we talked about last week. I do think that, you know, one of the things that is confusing w without having read the Brunswick, you know, because for the listeners, after he concludes his sessions with Freud, his first group of sessions with Freud, what, around... 1913 or 14, when the case is written up. One of the things that he tries desperately to clear up with Freud is uh, his constipation, right? He'd have to, we talked about this a little bit, where he has, he'd have to have self-administered or someone else administer these enemas to keep, in order to evacuate his bowels because he just, he, could, he couldn't shit, kind of like, kind of like Schreiber couldn't shit. And that, Freud sees that that's the hysterical symptom underlying the obsessive neurosis, that does clear up for about five years. Then it reoccurs and he comes back for Freud a little bit after losing his fortune. And Freud is able to work with the Viennese Psychoanalytic Association and get him basically like a stipend, like a yearly little uh, chunk of money so that he can live on and, and treat his his wife that he's, he had now married and who's got her own illnesses. You know, what is it, five, six years later, around 1925, 26, he starts to have a whole new set of symptoms centered around his nose and this kind of narcissistic fascination of scars in his nose and his sebaceous glands being blocked. And he's, he has, he, he starts to have really an imaginary kind of fantasy that his nose is all scarred and fucked up. So Freud sends him to one of his colleagues whom he had analyzed previously, Ruth Mac Brunswick, and she treats him. And so we get, and she writes a supplement to this, to the case, which is about 40 pages long. And there's a lot of new material that comes out. And I do think too, just to clarify, you know, in chapter two of the book, they do seem to, they admit that they are reconstructing a kind of fiction. And so not having read the Brunswick and also not knowing until later in the book that they sort of try to put these things together in a, they call it a psychodrama, right? They try to psychodramatize, really fictionalize even more so the Wolfman. I think without knowing that going in, yeah, it would be confusing. My last thing to end on, since we're talking about the magic word, the one word that he has to keep hidden, that sort of around which the whole crypt is built, the Russian word tirit, right? Which we figure out, we learn is to, to rub, to scar, to brush, right? Which will be important for him painting and, and stuff. But one of the words that's, that's one of the internal rhymes is Tirek, the river he goes to when he visits his sister's um, place of suicide. And so I think that your, your imagery of the, the brackish and the freshwater meeting is, is uh, with maybe without you knowing, maybe unconsciously, you, you kind of alluded to one of the 
what they call allosemes, one of the little synonymic variants, the little rhymes for the magic word. That's where I was immediately thinking of was the little river that is associated with his um, with his hidden word, which they translate. And even though it's not in the text, they have to reconstruct it. They translate it as what the sister did to father and Sergey. We can get into more about their hypothesis about what the wolf dream actually covers over or actually stands for. We can get into that later, but but I definitely want to let you keep going with the, unless you guys want to respond, well, I'll hand it back over to, to y'all. I, I had a question as you might be able to address, and just in sense of that, the little paragraph I read, I was thinking, what relation does this, does this sort of broadly have to like an imperceptibility in this, how to, especially this part, how to live without saying yes or no to reality or fiction while continuing to refer to both? I don't know, you know, just from a broad standpoint that just made me think imperceptibility, making oneself imperceptible. Yeah. It's, they, they describe it as the crypt and I, and, and Phoebe, I know you could add on to this, but I'll just say quickly, they described this construction of the crypt, at least for Sergey, for Wolfman as basically telling the means of the, the building of the crypt, the repression, the the whole logic of the cryptomony without having to tell the ends of it, right? So it's kind of telling the truth, but telling it slant. He's, and this is where they bring in the notion of fantasy as opposed to what well, they'll, say, they'll say in another text, for them, fantasy and reality are, are opposed, where fantasy is topographically trying to keep in place a status quo in the crypt or in the psychical apparatus, whatever you're going to call it, whereas reality would be that pressure, that force to, to erect a shift. And so Tiered is that where there'd be the, the linchpin or the keystone of the whole edifice that in the fantasy space is resisting that pressure of, of being a witness. And I think that that's the main thing about the about yes or no to fictional reality is precisely the, and Derrida is good here in his foreword about the, the juridical consequences of, of expressing, of bearing witness to, to this event that for Freud, the primal scene is the, the, you know, the doggy style with the mother and the father, but what, Abraham and Turok want to go through uh, hypothetically through the casework again and through all these linguistic reconstructions is in fact that what Sergei sees as a child is the father seducing his sister, right? And all the attendant consequences and all, and, and that's the quote unquote, the scandal and the great sin and all of, of the pressure on him to, to say the quote unquote truth, but also to, but not to condemn the father. So he's, you know, he's caught in this deadlock. And, and I think that they try to show how that built, that's like the, the foundation for the, for the entombment of all these different, uh, you know, these different mechanisms that keep it all together. But that, that's broad strokes. And I hope we get into that more. Do you want to add anything to, to that? I was actually, I was really, I'm happy that you just brought up the, the concept of fantasy in relation to topography. I think that in a certain way, the, the concept of the fantasy is partly what, what builds the crypt. 
or you know it's 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 it can even be like a fantasy of forgetting the word or something like that you know and i a lot of obviously like what Freud is doing brunswick wolfman's magic word i think that it, they're, tr- they're they're trying to fracture the crypt because you want to you want to get to deconstruct it right <laughs> deconstruct it in order and they get that word they get the word tirette which is like to rub to brush and i was just thinking a lot about that word and like all of its obvious connotations of what the wolfman sees and does and wants but i think that there's also you know the fantasy of tirette is pretty obviously sexual one and especially if it was like the dad and the sister there's a lot of rubbing involved in that t- any i mean even in doing it from behind i don't know whatever there's a lot yeah. of rubbing in the sex but i also think that there's also a lot of rubbing or a lot of fracturing in the motion of deconstructing the crypt in general and i i and that so, that was something which is just kind of tirette also functions as like a formal analysis of the project of the psychoanalysis and the literary criticism being done to the person as reality the person as fiction. Do you know what I mean? Like you need to find the spot which like rubs in order to break it. You need a, you or you need to like rub it in the correct way or touch it. It's like almost like a genie or something like that. Yeah. Like the metaphors go on and on, but that, and I just wonder how, how the, the fantasy of to rub also relates to, to the form of to rub. That's a good point. You know, what I would say is every time the kernel of the secret that he's holding, right? The kernel of the scandal, or even the kernel of the, the magic word threatens to, to cause him to literally ejaculate it, right? In, in the sense of yell it out, but also in the sense of the, the pimple that gets, you know, right. popped oh, yeah. in the blood and <laughs> that, exactly that, what that moment of ejaculation, that, that right. moment at which he would be sort of compulsively forced to, give away the secret, right? Which is something, you know, stand trial, right? As a witness. I think that that- To testify the truth, right? That's an interesting little connection there too. But but even outside of the Wolfman case, in any analysis, the closer you get to that kernel of repression, the more resistances come up. And right. as we know, in a physical notion of resistance, you always have friction. And so rubbing, as Phoebe, as you were saying, there is a sense in which rubbing itself is a meta, not a metaphor, a metonymy, but a meta narrative, or it has a means of reflexively pointing back at what occurs when the resistances rise, you know, the friction rises in the, uh, in the working through. So there's something to that, although, you know, for, Again, I'm trying to generalize outside the case. Obviously, they 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 show how this this word this word itself spawns out all of these other. Well, it's one of the three. They they find three pillars in the crypt, but it seems to be the the main one, or at least the primal primordial one that spawns off these little splinters of symbols that constellate his uh, his fantasy space, his his topography. And it's also so fascinating because. I mean, maybe this isn't, maybe this is only fascinating to me, but just the fact of this structural analysis, but then also the fact that this stuff is not only hidden, but it's invisible. Do you know what I mean? It's made to be invisible. And I think that that kind of, that almost brings us back to the, that original part Cooper was pointed out about walking that fine line between fiction and reality. I think that there's also a tension 
and invisibility between those two, or even like a non-intelligibility is what you were saying with the water. It's like, when does it become, right. when does it move from one to the other? It goes back to imperceptibility, even, I believe. That's kind of the thought that's the little red flag that's going off in my head just in hearing what you what you said, Phoebe. With the losing Guattari, it's becoming imperceptible is one of those finer becomings that is about the form of the secret and not necessarily its contents. So, I mean, if I would have to, I mean, this is obviously in a thousand plateaus, but if I wanted to sort of bring Deleuze and Guattari just for a second, it would be that question of the cryptonomy and what the cryptographic analysis that the authors are trying to work through with all these different linguistic modulations is this question of the, the form of the secret itself rather than even merely the content of, of the word because it's it's really the attendant configurations that it takes that's also important and without that you you really still are left with a kind of a hieroglyph rather than a map that they try to they try to construct if that makes sense his becoming imperceptible is a means of not bearing witness which is why they find the tension between the english governess who the reason why she's sent away and the reason why he resists or or the reason why he has this outbreak when she's there and he has this hatred for her as a child it seems to be that she knows the secret or the she knows part of the scandal and they try to reconstruct that dialogue between the governess and the and the mother that the mother knows too all too well what the the father has done to Anna the too, sister yeah. but the mother obviously is has the family to think about has the their whole whether it be shame or or jail time or whatever for the father i mean it it does spell disaster and they try to locate the catastrophe of the outcome of him bearing witness in the very tension in the very profound tension of of these of these words like wolf fly and tirret to rub i don't remember the russian for the other two but you know they see in those pillars the keys if you will the deciphering keys to the to the crypt. The cipher yeah yeah interesting the cipher yeah you know what's interesting here there's two things i wanted to mention one is sort of just neither here nor there necessarily but just goes to freud's approach is it's really to me what's interesting about the wolfman's obsessional behavior with regarding his nose is if you recall i believe it's in the wolfman's case that Freud specifically calls out, or maybe it was Ratman, where Freud specifically calls out the transition to bipedalism and it's diminished, where the nose smell becomes less emphasized and vision becomes more emphasized as we make that transition from quadrupedal or you know, quasi-quadrupedal to bipedalism is that the no the nose is which is involved with sex. And animals within animals, you know, that's a very, I guess, notable aspect of the sexual, even seduction to right with with odors and delimiting territory, which even goes to the wolfman with the urine, etc. Right? It is Ratman that he says that about gotcha. about the nose and, and being on all fours, and he says it also again in Civilization is Discontents. But I do think that it has. Um, it's interesting right here in the sense of Wolfman, especially you know the dream specifically is the primal scene is the bipedalism of the father wolf as it 
takes the mother wolf from behind. It's the it's the standing wolf on two legs that terrifies him, right? right? The image in the in the book that the sister torments him with, but wolves on all fours doesn't. So at least there, I think that there, there's a connection. Yeah, I thought that was sort of interesting there, but that was less pertinent, I think, to the discussion today. The more pertinent aspect of what I saw based on what you were saying for today is I think this notion of this notion of truth, which I think goes to testimony. And so there's almost this, there's a kind of analog between, let's say we're, a pro, we're attempting to reach the truth in scare quotes, right, in a, in a trial perhaps, versus what is being done in the analytic situation between analyst and analyzand. There's a certain testimony Testimony having its own specific – when you're testifying to something, you know, it's oftentimes the exclamation or what have you is whenever someone's in the religious sense in an old school Baptist church, right? It's like if someone is saying the truth, right? It's like, oh, testify, testify, mm. right? And you're right. going to raise your hands. So it's sort of bearing – this bearing witness, this bearing this connotation of the truth associated with testimony – I think is an interesting comparison or little sort of nugget in contrast to the relationship between the analyst and and Alizand. So I don't know if that captures your imagination at all, but those were two strands that I thought were somewhat interesting referencing what you had discussed. I mean, testis in Latin is a witness, but it's also the testicle, but it comes more generally etymologically from a third, a third party. And we know with cryptonomy and the, and the secret, it takes at least three is, I think Derrida says that, right? Phoebe, maybe you remember, he, he says something about the secret requiring three to make it a secret, I think, right? Kind of like the Oedipal Triangle. Something like that, yeah. I love that you just brought up that testify comes from testis because I was I was almost having like a cryptic moment listening <laughs> to Coop. You talk about testify as bearing witness, bearing, bearing witness, bearing children. Something there's a lot of recognition and misrecognition in this case. And one of the one of the misrecognitions or the false recognitions, false witness, whatever, that Freud points to is the is the maid on her hands and knees. Mm who then is misrecognized as, as the mother. As the mother, right. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. In the, in the notable, the primal scene, right, is the, the whole doggy style or from behind calculation. Right. Exactly, exactly. I was thinking a lot about, in The Wolfman's Magic Word, how Abraham and Tarok, that incredible part where they're reading and deciphering his dreams, one of their translations is like, she is clearly my mother in reverse. Mm. you know, of the nurse. And then it even goes to this, this even bigger reversal where they decipher another dream is clearly what the wish expressed in the dream conceals is the true desire of taking the father's place mm. in the original scene, which, you know, is a, is a reversal in terms of the son becomes the father or something like that. Or just the fact that then if you, if you even like further crypt that or read that in a cryptic way, you know, in German, mother is mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R. And, you know, this is also, this is a case that's- He mutters like, to himself, yeah. <laughs> right. And it's also just the the crypt is like like a muttered or a muddled word game. 
Yeah. You know, okay. but it's also the muttered, if you translate that back to English, it's also, I don't know, it's like a, a mothered word game or something mm. like that. And I was, I just like that testify is both bearing witness and the, the mother figure, but it also comes from the testicles. It's a very... Um, What's the fucking Scarface quote? I've got my balls and my word and I don't break them for no one, which I think... That sounds right. That's testimony. And I, and I do think that the other reversal that just to go along with what you were saying, Phoebe, the other reversal is a reversal of Freud too, because they interpret it as wanting to take the place of the father. And I noticed this when I was reading, whereas Freud is seeing in the primal scene dream in the dream of the wolves or in, the, in analyzing the primal scene that, that the son's homosexual libidinal desire is for his father. And so Freud seems to want to say that he's trying to take the place of the mother in the, in the primal scene, even though he will also interpret heterosexual components to, to the scene for Freud, at least he seems to put the emphasis on the, <laughs> on desiring the father. Right. So I think I thought that was interesting that their way of working through some of this material and reconstructing it and, and working through these reversals and inversions um, we see them, him wanting to replace the father and their interpretations. And we do see later that in, in one of the dreams recounted to Ruth Brunswick, I forget which one, but they also see her as being a, a reverse mother. This is towards the end. There's a lot of dreams to work through, so I, I don't, we don't necessarily have to focus in on them, but, but that's one of the things. And that's one of the things they also have to do in what they call allosemes, right? In, their, in the variants of the synonyms, the cryptonyms of Tiret and the word for wolf and the word for the, the fly, the open fly. They do have to many times reconstructing the dream and working from the German to the Russian, sometimes to the English, they will have to kind of like in the same way that dream interpretation goes, they have to interpret certain word things as they call them as needing reversal in order to translate, transcode the desire behind the, the wish in each case, in each dream instance. You, you get what I'm saying. I don't have a response. I don't know if you, if you do either, Phoebe, if you if you don't, I would like to, I think, take a moment to discuss the difference between metonymy and the cryptonymy. I think that's a big, big issue we should probably at least, you know, at least kind of uh, draw out. That's such a nuanced little point, I think, to draw a little comparison or just kind of set the stage for exactly, because obviously they're lifting cryptonymy, I think, from the, the concept of metonymy in Lacan. But it's older than that, right? It's, it is etymological. I mean, the, it, there are all kinds of different kinds of nims in terms of names, words. Um, if metonymy is merely a substitution, what cryptonymy indicates is that veritably there is no true substitution. There is nothing that can stand in for Tiret. And they even make this clear when they say that Tiret seems to be the one exception to the other cryptonyms or to the other alicemes that populate this, the crypt itself, in that it seems to take on visual importance. Like with the, the maid scrubbing, it has a visual 
kernel to it. So that would be the one thing I would say. The other thing, and I know Phoebe could, could definitely improve on this. The other thing I would say is, is just that, you know, that last chapter on the symbol and on broken symbols, which as we saw in the, in the little paragraph that we looked at, that's a stand-in for cryptonym. If in psychoanalysis, you know, like in dream interpretation or working through the session, whatever, if each symptom and symbol has a corresponding co-symbol, that could stand in for it and speak it, that is not true for, for Crips. And this is why they use the metaphor of the, the jigsaw puzzle, which stands in as kind of an image to, to say that each symbol and co-symbol is fractured in ways that can't really be logically concluded to unless you really put in the five years of listening in, the, in these different methods of listening. So I would say with, with the cryptonym, with a hysteric or with a neurotic, either with the body or with words, the symptom and the symbol can be articulated and therefore can be expressed. And this is not the case for the Wolfman, as we've seen, right? This is precisely the, the kind of paradoxical situation he's in, uh, in his, insofar as however he bears witness truthfully or, or falsely, he's, he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't, right? He's, he's always in this case of being false, except in the manner in which it takes an Abraham and a Turok to try to, to try to produce a new method of listening, a new method of seeing, of linking together these, these languages. I guess I would just leave it there and, 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 and let Phoebe, let, if, if, you, if you had anything to add there. And I would add, it's like also a new system of metaphor. I really haven't read a lot of Lacan besides his stuff with, with the knot. But so I don't really know about metonymy in relation to Lacan, but I would say that metonymy is a form of metaphor and it's, it's a form of metaphor as, as fragmentation. And I, I, I definitely do think that cryptonomy is kind of like this a kind of like expansive metaphor that includes all forms of speech, both hidden and said, and it's like super pictographic. Which is why to me, you know, it's so fascinating that you have an image or like you, it's not even a dream, which is more of an obvious metaphor, but it's just an image of seeing your dad having sex with your mom from behind. And all of a sudden that becomes its own language or it becomes its own symbol. And the project is then to find what word is it? What word does that relate to in this new alphabet of the individualized cryptonomy as a form uh, like as, as a form of going, as a form of finding an origin to it. It's almost like a backwards form of metaphor or of metonymy. It's also, it can be like a metonymy in, in reverse. And I would add that, that, you know, one of the intricacies of the crypt, one of their metapsychological suggestions is that with the crypt and cryptonomy, what happens is this split in the ego where one side is using these cryptophores or these cryptonyms because they will sometimes, or at least Derrida uses the term cryptophore. Anyway, uh, one side of the ego is, is testifying, is trying to bear truthful witness, whereas the other is counter, countering that in one and the same movement, right? And they also say it, the 40 little cryptonyms they give at the end in this nice little uh, cool little layout is um, that these cryptonyms that they've 
cataloged can be considered first as fantasy producing, then as counterproductive to fantasy. I think that that deadlock is, which I think is actually a perfect name, deadlock for for the crypt, right? Because we are looking for keys and what does the crypt hold, but the entombed, the dead. I think that that deadlock is essential to cryptonomy because with neurosis, symptoms can be can find their corresponding co-symptom or co-symbol in order to be worked through in a quote-unquote normal way, whether it be through catharsis, ab reaction, talking cure, etc. We see that the talking cure can't reach the crypt, not in the not in the way that um, Freud has has left us his toolbox to work through. You see that that's not enough to get to the heart of the crypt because the crypt is is itself even when, when when we think we're getting close to it it's you know as Derrida he he uses great imagery here where you know the egos are standing one one ego is kind of standing guard the other is trying to like let guests in and see see the the tombstones and the engravings but he's he's showing us you know false one he's leading us off track so there i think this is why they their hypothesis for someone like Wolfman, multilingual, is basically that you have to approach it polysemically, translinguistically. Uh, you can't merely work within one language. And so much of the tension isn't even co-symbolic, but intra-psychical and intra-symbolic. So I guess that's where I would go with why, why the my metonyms aren't enough to get us to the to the crypt. They're always it's always going to be the it's always going to be too slippery, right? The this you know the, the slippage of language. A la yeah, Lacan. it's 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 going to be too it's going to be too slippery, and everything's going to fall through the cracks if you stick within one language. This is why they their their main thing was basically after four or five years, and they they kept thinking they were making progress, but they were always getting off track, and then. They have this thought, what if we got a Russian dictionary? And it was that insight that led them. I think that that without that, I don't think that they could have finished. I think that it, we would have just be left with a couple of the first two chapters, which were the initial seeds of their study. We would just be left with that. We wouldn't have the, well, I don't even think we would have cryptonomy as they lay it out without their understanding that the Russian gives some of the, and, and then all these different transformations that don't follow regular transformations that don't follow, whether it be metaphor or metonymy, or even rhyme as they define it is not rhyme as we think about it in a general simple sense, right? That the rhymes are these transpositions and transformations and that are much more, poetic in the sense of, of a semiotic poetics. Uh, I think that sensitivity to the language is what allows them to say that metaphor and metonymy don't uh, alone, don't, don't get you where you need to go. Yeah, the way that they define rhyme and uh, the shell and the current or in mourning or melancholia introduction incorporation they go the speech of the world is made up of rhymes an unsayable followed closely by its rhyme or 
depending on the particular context, a group of rhymes generated by the same word. That's great. There's something that's so religiously fundamentalist about Tarok and Abraham to me. Um, and I, I say that, I say that in terms of thinking of Sufism or thinking of Hasidism, like a fundamentalist understanding of the of the Torah via Kabbalah. I think that the way, and I don't, I don't know as much about Sufism as I know about Kabbalah, but there is this seriousness in these almost spiritual fundamentalist sects of monotheisms, which especially in Kabbalah, which I think look for their own language in order, I don't know, in order to read better. You know what I mean? Like, like even Kabbalah almost understands Hebrew as the language itself is a jigsaw puzzle. The language itself, they're like, if only we knew how to spell the word correctly, we would know what God's name was. Mm. And I'm also thinking about the, um, I think that numerology comes up a lot in, in like spiritual fundamentalist sex, again, of, of mostly monotheism, where like numbers and to enter into the equation of sense-making in order to reach something. And I was, I was really just struck by the almost like numero numerological or like spiritualist language games that they're going through. Does, does that make sense? Where it's just kind of, if you think of, or I was even thinking of like psychoanalysis and Freud as like its own monotheism. And then like, this is the language which makes sense of that. Like it's the creation of a language which is not quite English, German, right? It's 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 kind of like it's a language that's garnered from what actually makes sense mm. in speech as a translation, but also as a sense-making machine. I think that's great. Two things. One would be the what you when you quoted their essay, Morning or Melancholia, this I think one thing that I may have left out that you you nicely filled in was the essential about the unsayable, right? That gets back to that tension of bearing truthful witness on one side of the ego and at the same time bearing false witness. So the unsayable is, is definitely a very key component of the cryptonym and the crypt, which also gets us to your point about, at least in, well, the question of, you know, God's name, as you said, right? This the proper name, the, the, the appropriate name, but even taking God's name in vain. So this question of the unsayable. But the other thing is, in the Wolfman's case, not just in Freud's, but also in Ruth Brunswick's analysis, and then we see it come up in there in Abraham and Turok's uh, reading, there is a very numerological dimension, as we find out, right? There is this question of five, six, sevens, usually, is, is where I think even just for... Abraham and Turok, it's five and six that have the most importance. And it's, and we see them taking on visual uh, fantasy effects too, right? With the five of the butterfly being the, the opening of the legs and um, the six not just being the IU or the IV, right? Left out of Phileas and et cetera, et cetera. But the six in, Russian and German being uh, Schwester and what is it, Siestra, something like that, where it's the sister. So six, this is where Contra de Luz and Guattari, where it's it's not one or several wolves, it's it's one or sister wolf, 
right? Is it one wolf? Is it the father wolf or is it the sister wolf? Of course, Freud reduces the wolf to the father because that works with his idea of castration and phobia for Abraham and Turok on their hypothesis that the father is actually the uh, seducer of the sister and that, that starts everything rolling. It's the sister wolf in terms of six. I think that that becomes a very, I would say brave, I would say daring reading. I like it. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying I necessarily think everything that Abraham and Turok say are right, but many of their reconstructions through these, as you were calling it, language games, and I think that's important. This translinguistic, even these translanguage games are, uh, are at least compelling, if not always convincing. But I don't necessarily think the book itself is meant to be like we have the last word because <laughs> even by the time they wrote this, he was still alive or at least I think so. Um, maybe by the time Derrida wrote his forward, he was dead. But in any case, you know, their point, I think, is one of the things that Freud, Freud gets implicated in the dreams with Ruth Mac Brunswick precisely because he's wanting to, he like, you know, he sends that letter to Wolfman. He's, Hey, can you tell me whether or not that the primal, the primal scene, the dream, the wolf dream was, was, was real. He is wagering so much of psychoanalysis on this case. Abraham and Turok feel that in a certain way, Freud is putting Wolfman back in this original position of having to testify of having to tell the truth, but tell it slant and not, and, and having to bear witness for him and to, to, for him to be able to be leaned on against, if not just auto rank, but the whole psychoanalytic association in there and Freud's legacy seems to reside on this. This is why they begin that first chapter by saying, this is Freud trying to convince, but he's also trying to convince himself. I think this is why the, the case is so long and also why he, Freud seems to repeat himself a lot, especially towards the end of the case, where he really is trying to convince, not just to, he's not just trying to show how psychoanalysis can work. He really is trying to say that it does work. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's also just, that's, first of all, that's my favorite Emily Dickinson poem, Tell the Truth and Tell It's Slant. At the end of the, at least in, I have the college, the Freud reader version, which is honestly not a great version, collected of Freud. I, I think it's, I think it's good for its first it's purpose. It's adequate. It's good yeah. for its purpose. It doesn't stand for the whole 24 volumes, uh, but, but yeah, go ahead. But the last, the last footnote, I'm just going to read it. It's a footnote that Freud added to this, to this case history. And then it just goes... But oh, in fact, yeah, it goes, but in fact, the wolfman who remained in Vienna experienced several distressing psychotic episodes and spent some time with Ruth Mac Brunswick, while the wolfman never lived up to his potential and remained subject to intermittent fits of brooding and to depressions, his analysis had at least rendered him capable of a fairly normal social existence of holding a job and marrying. I just kept thinking about that in, you know, in, in terms of in terms of proof you know, as you're saying, like proof that it worked, you know, the analysis worked because now he can like be with a woman 
monogamously. He can get married to her and he can, he can have a job. So I think that Freud, you just get the sense that Freud is just pushing so, so, so hard to, you know, to be like, you need to be normal. We need to have almost a return to normal life. Where did your life get off track? Your life got off track with this, the infantile neurosis. That, 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 I mean, that's not fully fleshed out, but I was really struck by how that was, that's the cure. That's the goal. The cure is to go back to normal. To, the cure is to join another set of the normal social bracket. This is why that last footnote where he's like, oh, you know, Wolfman came back. We just worked through a little bit of uh, a little transference that was still there. You know, it's okay. He's still good. Uh, but it's really also, it works. Psychoanalysis works. And yeah. That's, I mean, he's trying to convince the world that it works and that it's not just some astrological dream hobby stuff, right? Like, because it's the same thing in interpretation of dreams where he's like, no, this is a fucking science. You can get it down. But that's one piece of the puzzle. But if you can't show that psychoanalysis can treat even the worst cases, like, I mean, I'm not going to say the Wolfman is the worst, but you know what I mean? He's got some, he's got some fucked up shit. If Wolfman can't be used as testimony for psychoanalysis as a testimonial, right, in that sense, then then there's a lot at stake for Freud. There's a lot of potential uh, fallout that's negative for him. I mean, I know that you guys are big fans of Deleuze and, and Guattari. You pronounce them better than I do. That's how, <laughs> that's how well you are at reading them. I know we weren't supposed to read this, but I did read One or Several Wolves, which is Deleuze's response to the Wolfman. And I thought that that was, that was almost like a fascinating response to this idea of the cure, you know, where he's kind of, and again, you're going to have a better read on this than I am, but you know, he just, he just writes in the second page, he goes, it, it is rather a pure multiplicity that changes elements or becomes like, I think he understands the dream, you know, he's called the wolf man because he is the dream of the wolves on the tree. And it, it is almost unclear how many wolves there are based on his two recollections of the dream and then the picture that he produces. Right. And, but Deleuze just makes this incredible point that it's, the wolf is never a singular entity. Like the wolf comes in the pack. Yes. Understanding, which goes also goes, then goes back to the, the metonymy that Kupi pointed out earlier, which is just, how are you supposed to read this case when, when the whole notion of the patient or the insane person or the neurotic is understanding the parts as not necessarily necessitating the whole or or even understanding that in reverse where they only see the whole, but then the analyst is kind of enforcing the testimony, the the judgment of being like, aren't these your parts? Aren't these the parts that are that are making this whole when that's not that's not the schema, that's not the schematics in which the neurotic it complies with. That's now where his brain's at. For Deleuze and Guattari, it's it's that the neuro the neurotic works all too well with the Freudian conception and it's the psychotic and the schizophrenic who really resist this and wolfman if not schizophrenic you know in that classical sense definitely has moments of psychosis that we know about not just cutting the finger but also especially the stuff where he is hyper focused on his nose and the pores and holes in his nose that's definitely much closer to psychosis as you call it as Lacan will call it but yeah I, I take your point I mean I, everything you said was brilliant and 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 I think that 
I said this a few months back, but rereading, because I read it a few months ago, uh, reread it a few months ago, and I was thinking, you know, Deleuze and Guattari really don't even, don't even express how fucked up this case is, because it is kind of a polemic in a certain sense against Freud, but it also sets up their logic of multiplicities, which is so, so central to at least Deleuze's philosophy, if not Guattari's uh, schizoanalysis. You know, I would just say with Freud, when you look at the case, he knows very well that wolves come in packs. And yet, and yet he, and yet he, he reduces it to the father, to castration, to, I mean, that's just, it's simpler that way. It's more expedient that way for the analysis, right? That becomes a, another weapon that becomes another hammer and every problem becomes a nail, right? In that reductive sense. Um, although Freud many times shows great finesse here, Deleuze and Guattari fault him for knowing quite well. And yet, which is precisely the, what a neurotic would do, right? I mean, or compulsive, even an obsessive compulsive, they, they know quite well. And yet, <laughs> Coop, did you, uh, did you have any reflections? I just think it's, uh, something Phoebe brought up was one or several wolves reminded me a little bit of the sort of topological nature of the body without organs and that sort of i don't know to me you know granted i don't have the best grasp on body without organs but i feel like that's sort of what this this description of one or several wolves is sort of getting at is this kind of deconstructed view of the i guess the body or the psychoanalytic apparatus the phenomenological experience or topological model rather yeah, I mean, I would just say that that here, in terms of the logical multiplicities, you know, as they conceive of the body with organs is not opposed to the organs, it's opposed to the organization, right? And I think that that's, <laughs> that's clever. What, I mean, that's what they would say about Freud's means of organizing the case history. So much hangs together on the phobia of the wolf being this phobia of the father, being this phobia of castration, all of these classical tools that we see, we do see Abraham and Turok, even though they don't necessarily work through redefining them, we do see that after the fact, retrospectively, with their cryptonymic analysis and with their, with this new fresh view of the case, we see those we see the father transformed because the father is incorporated into the the psyche of the wolf man of Sergei and is living dead, is is dead alive, right? In in the in the wolf man's, you know, it, it crypt, right? He's kept there with the sister. Daredog goes to great lengths to kind of show the logic of this because he's drawing on the essays from the shell and the kernel that we'll just kind of leave mostly to the side for, for now. But the, you know, the other thing is they they also give a new meaning to castration at least retroactively again because we see that it can't become this this one ring to rule them all this one tool to to unlock all all unconsciouses we we see that that it doesn't it doesn't work and one of the things that i think is great about wolfman going to ruth Mac Brunswick, and she even kind of says says a little bit about this, is precisely because working with a female analyst, he's able to work through a different side of the transference, 
right? He's no longer has Freud's austere phallic daddy, phallic daddy. Yeah. All that shit that, that Freud himself both tries to undercut and yet in the analysis reinstate, right. You know, with, I think that with, with him being able to work through a different side of the transference through a feminine mm-hmm. side, I think that's why we see new material come to light that becomes at least as important in the, in Abraham and Turok's analyses. One aspect of that, that I thought was, that stood out for me. And I think it's just in reference of, to the sort of libidinal economics of it, of the case that we discussed, you know, in earnest last week is the difference between how money is discussed or like the, the contradiction between how the Wolfman acts in the context of money between both analysts, between Freud and Brunswick, because he is obviously sort of hiding this. He's, he's bearing the sort of truth that he has access to money, to, to resources, and yet relies on Freud's right. eat his springtime contribution to, to the Wolfman, financially speaking. I think it's interesting that, he gets what we would call in Latin a per annum right. from Freud when what maybe we learn that what he initially wanted in that first session was a per annum right. from Freud. I don't know if y'all saw that. Wasn't that in one of the footnotes from the biography that Freud mentions or at least Abraham and Turok say that what Wolfman wanted was Freud to get all on all fours <laughs> for the Otergo. Yeah, I, I, I remember that. I remember that part. In the Ratman case, Freud talks about a per annum because it's about money. When I thought that he would have been able to make a pun there too about the per annum, it's just been a pun that's been like stuck in my head. It's not really a good one, but. Which would be the singular of Anus. Derrida talks about Mallarmé's English words, where he lists each English word phonetically. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think that it's enough that the words sound the same t- to make sure that there that is a rhyme, that is a type of truth that definitely comes from his need to get the shit for free, like the right. like the care for free. But it's also, which is it's it's equally his desire to be on all fours for someone else or to have Freud on all fours. You know, you know what I mean? It's enough that they sound the same. I think it would be per ano, A-N-O. So I was close. Anyway, you're right, though. The the concealing of the jewels is very important, right? When he... The family jewels, which I think has a specific connotation, right? I thought that kind of jumped out at me, too, obviously. Which they don't do anything with, but yes, the family... Ruth doesn't do anything with it. Uh, Ruth Brunswick doesn't do anything with it. Neither does... Abraham and Torog, maybe they, they weren't familiar with that English idiom, that turn of phrase of the family jewels. Freud would have loved that because then it would reconfirm some of the stuff I was just blaming him for. But, you know, I mean, in terms of Abraham and Turok, in terms of the incorporation of the father and this identification with the father, family jewels could be the common penis that they describe, right, for the father and Sergei. But yes, he... After losing all of his wealth after the October Revolution, his mother, what, sends him a pair of earrings and a necklace? Is that right? And um, he thinks it's going to be worth thousands of dollars, at least probably enough that he could live, if not comfortably, for a year. Or at that time, it, it would have been a considerable sum. 
That's all we know. And um, he hides this from Freud. And we, we learned from Ruth Brunswick that he had been almost a compulsively honest person, which is funny considering the crypt and not being able to testify to the original scene of seduction. But otherwise, he was an almost compulsively honest person. And he starts to he starts to spiral into some of these bad habits, I would say. But here it's obviously pathological um, where he he's now he's got the jewels. He feels like he can't tell Freud, even though Brunswick says that Freud wouldn't have disowned him or cut him off if he would have learned that he had some little bit of insurance money just in case things fall flat. But what does, what does uh, Wolfman do? He starts to uh, speculate. And I think this is very important considering um, the last chapter of libidinal economy and the discussion of, of speculation and just the, the fact that he's probably speculating at a time in the 20s when we know that there's going to be economic collapse and depression. Right. And part of what led to that was this un inhibited speculation, obviously not from Wolfman himself, but from many actors like him, many economic actors like him, and this use of credit outside of bank institutions, you know, all that's kind of, all that's to say that this dishonesty of hiding his jewels, which again has its interesting connotations, this leads him to have all sorts of other symptoms pop up and crop up. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of linked to that question of his intermittent constipation that he seems to always have, right? This question of, cause what, what do we hear? We hear that doesn't he start to have more diarrhea when he gets the, the jewels and the money like, so it's, it is, it is interesting that his hysterical symptoms are located in the bowels. They seem to always be associated with flows of money and flows of shit. Yeah. I mean, it's also kind of the leakage of the crypt just to go back to mm. that. You mm. know what I mean? Like, I think that you open the crypt a little bit and something you don't want to come out, comes out accidentally you know, the stomach is the second, is the second brain of the body. (laughs) (laughs) The stomach is the body crypt. It really hides a lot and it holds a lot in there. And a lot of the body is dictated. You can tell what you're feeling by like your skin or your stomach, what's going in and out. So I think that, you know, there's like a literally anally retentive is the constipation, you know? And accounting as well is like a big component of that too, I think. Yeah. Right. And they're like all of these like very physical responses to something which is which is invisible to something which is operating on this invisible language front. But I mean, I don't even know if invisible is it's ever the right word to treat language with, especially, especially here, especially here. And also just like the just going off of the pun with the family jewels, he hides the family jewels. And I think that that's that is funny because Freud is like. Freud thinks that the family jewel he saw was being inserted into the mother, but in fact, he was hiding the real visualization of the family jewels of the, yeah. of the dad and the sister actually having something. So Almost like tucking. Like, for some reason, I get the image of tucking the, the penis and the balls well, to, it's, pa- it's to pass as the mother. 
Right. Mm. Or try to pass as the mother. And I think that that's associated with his obsession of powdering his nose, right? That is, I mean, literally the tucking is, he is kind of on the precipice of going into drag. His use of the makeup and the powdering, which becomes obsessional, that's kind of linked to his, again, a kind of feminine identification, hysterical, obsessional complex with the the narcissistic the obsession yeah, of, exactly. of constantly looking at his nose right. in the in the in the mirror and powdering it. Yeah, I'm, I, th- I do think that that's he's on the verge of of going drag, and it's fascinating. I don't know if you saw. I posted this last night, Coop. I don't know if you saw either, Phoebe, but I screenshotted from the supplement Ruth Brunswick supplement where she basically says that if he could have, I said, if he could have transitioned, Ruth doesn't use that word, but basically if he could have undertaken his identifications with female sexuality, if his feminine identifications could have been taken to a, basically it's kind of like at the beginning of the case history, if he could have, if he would have been born a girl, he could have avoided the majority of these symptoms of these. He could have potentially been a healthy person this is around the time where she discusses his dream that freud tells him to not go into criminal law but to go into political economy and obviously what abraham turok want to say is of course freud doesn't want him to go into criminal law because he can he would then be in this milieu where testifying and the judicial juridical aspect of testifying against freud for for rank or testifying against Freud using him as a bulwark for psychoanalysis. But of course, Ruth herself and Abraham Turok think that this is a fiction or a fantasy, that that the dream never happened and Wolfman's insistence that they did in fact discuss uh, him going into political economy instead of criminal law. They both say that this is most likely a fantasy. I'm not, I could go either way. I'm I'm not sure. <laughs> I would love to to see what you guys have to say. I guess more about the nose as I just found that there was a lot of intimacy in terms of the focus on like the different, I guess, holes of the face. You know, because you obviously have the nose. The nose plays a huge part, but then you also have this strange passivity of sight with the dream itself is the window opens on its own and they, and he's frozen. He can't look away, but he's also like not actively looking at the wolves. There's a section about the ears where Abraham and Tarok are like, we have to listen. This is something like the analyst and the person writing needs to listen. And then you get all the way to, to the mouth in Morning or Melancholia, you know, where they're talking mm-hmm. about the infant's open mouth as being the space of reception or the space that the open mouth is what needs to be filled. And then food and language become very similar, even like the mother's breast and the mouth. And I just found there's a lot eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. There is so much intimate detail to these separate parts of the face. And I was wondering if you guys noticed that or, or, or had anything that you had to say about, about that seven holes in a face. 
that's interesting in the context of faciality for sure. But also, I wonder if this Pinocchio thing too is a, has any has any play in terms of the the sort of lies that he tells. The yeah, wolfman. and it, the like elongated snout of the wolf. I I don't know. Right. That, yeah. That might be that might be. No, I don't think I don't being think you're, too free and fair with or getting a little bit out there, but you're not know. wrong about that. And it's just that as Abraham Turok say in German and Russian, it's the opposite of Pinocchio, that it's the flattened nose. Like the pug that, nose. That that like his pug nose, the flattened nose that would indicate deceit. I would know the idiom or the folklore yeah. behind that. That's its own thing, but we have our own little story. Well, since I don't know when the Pinocchio story was written first, but um, you know, obviously now long noses in, in terms of your nose is growing with Pinocchio, that means you're telling falsehoods, but at least in uh, their analysis in terms of, and they said specifically in terms of German and Russian that a flattened nose would. So, and I think that that just, I think that that's one of the reasons, one of the little constellations of symptoms that is why he keeps focusing on the nose, right? It is this to make sure that it's not a tell, if you will, right? Uh, it's not, it's not telling on him for keeping this secret and not bearing witness, but definitely in terms of the, the different organs, the different components of the, the face, I think it is great that you brought up morning or melancholia again, Phoebe, because, you know, I was thinking about the community of empty mouths that they discuss, right? That the, the absence of food and the sort of almost, uh, I don't want to say transcendental, but I will, the transcendental matrix of the empty mouth as, as this void filled with the tongue in, in terms of language acquisition and these other things. We know that, in a certain sense, Wolfman has a multi-forked tongue because he has all these different languages that he's grown up with. To such an extent that in the fetishism essay, he is described as having a fetish for the nose itself, the glance at the nose, or however Freud puts it right, and that he is described as having forgotten the language that he grew up with, his Russian his Russian is kind of hovering in this indistinct space, whether it's, it's not quite fully unconscious, it's not fully forgotten, but it is this subterranean, almost uh, volcanic, you know, with its eruptions, it's almost this volcanic undercurrent that Abraham Turok really sees upon. I would just say in terms of the ears and listening, you're right. They, and at the end of the book, they, they want to say in order to hear the crypt appropriately, it's not just, we can't just train ourselves to listen. Well, we have to train our, we have to find different new ways of listening. Right. And I think that that's what they finally realized with this Russian undercurrent and, and taking on the dictionary. I do think that, Wolves and other animals having longer ears never comes up in any of the fantasies, though, which is interesting, right? Because in most depictions of werewolves, right there, the ears start to become elongated and pointy and stuff. Well, there is mention, I don't think in Freud specifically, but it's either Brunswick or the Turok and Abraham piece about uh, the wolves 
coming to rep sheepdogs and eventually like a, a, a spitz, some type of spitz derivative, or which would be like a Pomeranian who have the sort of triangular wolf-like ears. Okay, okay. I must have missed that. I don't recall which text it's in, but it's definitely referenced. It sounds like that sounds like the, the the what we read for today. That sounds like Abraham and Turok. There's so much of the linguistics. Well, stuff I think it, it it actually may be in the supplement because she references. Okay. I believe it's Brunswick. Maybe they reference Brunswick talking about it. Okay. Maybe the tie-in, but yeah, she definitely. I feel like she does say something about as she is working with the Wolfman in the analysis this image of the wolf becomes more and more muddled and it comes to be more these are dogs that resemble wolves and gotcha, i think the gotcha. spitz the spitz breed in particular of which the pomeranian is a sub species or whatever what did you guys think about his wife committing suicide i wish i knew more about that i'm not even getting theoretical here i just <laughs> I, I found that as a shock I, I kind of felt that that was. And yeah, they do sort of a the crazy authors. irony of the mm-hmm. sister. You know, if you think about, if you do indeed agree with Freud's takes and how that sort of how impactful this sexual experience with the sister was, then there's definitely a lot. Of, that's almost too almost too on the nose, if you will forgive that pun. The mother to commit suicide because. Am I right? Am I trying you to mean think the that wife? The wife to commit suicide. The wife committed suicide. Was it the rat man's sister that committed suicide as well, or maybe that's what I'm conflating? No, I don't. Someone's sister committed suicide. Well, his sister, Wolfman's sister, committed suicide. It was Ratman because he goes to visit the grave and sees the rat. That okay? So it's it's Ratman. It's not Wolfman. No, no, Wolfman's sister Anna eventually commits suicide because of her nose pimples. Oh, she really? says okay. that she's, she yeah. was super embarrassed by having acne. Interesting. So she kills herself by drinking mercury. Okay, so which they say in a different uh, essay is uh, is is what artot, which is like Tourette, right? Yeah. They don't the say inverse, Tourette syndrome. Yeah, it's the inverse <laughs> of Tourette. Yeah. So she's getting back at the dad. She right. like drinks mercury to be like, I'm going to turn the situation inside out because it's like the inside out of the, of the word Tourette, which is the incestual crime she committed with the dad. That's her way of bearing witness. She's a monument. Justifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then it, which is also the, the Wolfman that becomes sort of obsessed crypt. with like popping his nose, popping his nose pimples. Right. Which is, which is the ejaculation, but it's right. also the association with the sister, which is there's so many like doubles going on at the same time. It's almost <laughs> what you were saying. When you were talking about the notion of tucking, I was thinking. In powdering the nose, there's a certain, yeah. there's like a sub, not a subterfuge, but there's a masking. There's a sort of deception. Yeah, you're Even if it's within holes. oneself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, ooh, that's a good one. I think that that's covering what I was the wounds. Say. Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Yeah. Good. Go oh on God. with that thought. You said it was um, like, it's covering the holes and that's part covering of covering the holes what, in the nose. And then the tucking is almost this visualization of, of the creation of a new hole almost because right. like a woman and like very heterosexist understanding of a woman is defined through that hole. And that's definitely how Freud and the, the con are understanding yeah. like a woman. So I think that, you know, what holes are you covering and what hole like, like through the, through the then like becoming sister or becoming mother or whatever what holes are you trying to repeat on your on your own body with christ having what did he say what there's a whole christ thing too about or the front bottom 
is what well the front bottom was when he's he his the first scene he uh admits to at least in the freud case is is seeing his sister says why don't we show our bottoms to each other right and he sees this and they do uh but he also sees her and a friend urinating and he and and this is his first or one of the first uh encounters with what Freud calls castration, you know, the other sex, right. With so seeing the feminine castration, but like most little boys or like childhood sexual theories, he doesn't imagine that they are castrated or lacking a, um, a penis, just that it's very small. We see this in little Hans too. So he calls it a front bottom. So, yeah, I mean, tucking would be, would be reproducing the, the front bottom, not to say the Wolfman tucked, but it, it's not a far stretch. I wanted to know more details about what led his wife to suicide. I mean, we know she was, she had ill health and this is one of the reasons why Freud helped to subsidize him, uh, Wolfman. And that becomes important too. We didn't really say, but one of the things in the fantasy space of Wolfman is that, which he denies, but seems to entertain at the same time, kind of like the fact of castration, right? He, is that he's being paid off by Freud. Um, which he he doesn't know what to do with. He seems to both testify to it in his dreams and yet at the same time disavow it consciously. So, but yeah, I wish I knew more about the details surrounding his wife's suicide. If she had psychological issues, I mean, it's seems like everyone in this case history does, <laughs> including perhaps the analyst too, because I think that it's important with Abraham and Turok are talking about being compelled by this case, that they, they literally were. And one of the things that they say is their goal isn't to save Wolfman, but to save the analysis, right? So there is something quasi pathological in their interest and Freud's too, right? But, but I think they at least are honest. Does that make sense? Or, or am I am I projecting? <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. They forget that he that he was a human to begin with, it seems like. They become so removed by language and by the stories and by the different analysts. I they even become convinced, I don't know if this is consciously or subconsciously, I think that they they start to become convinced that the wolf man is like just a fiction. There's a forgetfulness right. of like of the real. And just, you know, going back to your question of why the wife committed suicide, I mean, I mean, I, I can't imagine being married to the wolf man. Not that, no. you, know, you know what I mean? It's like, you'd have no. to be a pretty messed up person to begin with to like marry this guy and to like sleep with him and to deal yep. with his pimples all over your bed, bed sheets. So. And, and I do think that it's almost like a contact high. It's like a contact delirium. You know, I mean, if you're going to be that intimate with him. And I think that that's part of what Abraham and Turek are talking about, spending five years on the case and trying to crack, crack the case, crack the code, becomes an obsession for them. And I think that that's why they kind of say that they were trying to, whether you call it exercising a demon or whether they were trying to put the case to bed so that they could save themselves, you know, um, it, it does seem to be something that, that they themselves incorporated as a kind of foreign body that they had to deal with, right? You know, and and so I think that that's why I'm interested in 
his wife's suicide, Teresa, which becomes linked to Tourette, right? As we, it's almost too good to be fiction, right? It's, 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 it's too on the nose again, to, <laughs> since we're going to use that pun, fuck it. It's too on the nose that all these, and including one that I didn't think about until, until reading, reading the, the Wolfman's magic word is, the play on Anna, his sister, and Nanya, right, which is a diminutive right. of Anna. So Nanya, his his nurse, who is the first person he goes to when he has the terrifying wolf dream. What I found interesting, and I, I, this is just to kind of continue with some of the stuff, and I guess it's it's the pink elephant in the room, <laughs> or this whatever. It's um they fault Freud for using the term seduction too broadly for what the sister does to Wolfman. Coop and I have, I think, spent a little bit of time with this because when we've talked about it, I, I said, this is learned behavior for a girl her age, for any child that age to be sexually Pulling exploring in that way. Snake. Right. That's learned behavior. And they, they, as analysts, obviously it's, it's not a far cry to, to, they know this too. And that's why they had this hypothesis. So for them, the sisters, they put it in scare quotes, seduction of the wolf man is secondary to the seduction proper because they say quite clearly that it takes an adult or that the term seduction should be used for adults. Now this is leaving aside both Freud's early seduction theory, even though that's important here, to a certain extent, and Laplanche's generalized universal seduction, which wouldn't fit here. But for them, I thought that that was very fascinating. This, I mean, I just want your, either of you, your thoughts about the whole point, I think, or the whole crux of doing all of this cryptoanalysis in the Wolfman's Magic Word, what Abraham and Turok are really trying to convince us of, I think, if they're trying to convince us anything, is how all of this hinges on his sister being molested by by the father. And that yeah. he somehow witnessed this. And that that's the primal scene. Gotcha. That that is their wager in the book. What are, what are your thoughts just in general about, I, I kind of threw a lot at, at y'all, but just, just, just your reactions to some of that or your thoughts on some of that. I want to push back on the notion that the sister has to be that I want to push back on that whole idea. Not that it's necessarily incorrect, but that I think just in the context of childhood sexuality, there is a certain, those objects, sexual partial objects have not been cathected fully at that point that I think there's a plausibility of this being an innocent gesture. Okay. Like I want to, I want to leave a space at least potentially that this was an innocent gesture this because children children don't you would be you would be ignorant of this sexual this repressed sexuality at this point and so you wouldn't necessarily know it wouldn't make because it kind of doesn't make sense in a in a sense if you're not fully integrated in the symbolic order then you don't really get the significance of these things which also you know, let's say that there is a molestation situation, then that can also work there too, because the child is not fully aware of the gravity of those experiences and so forth. But 
But you know, but uh, you actually seem to be then agreeing with Abraham and Turok, though, in a certain way, even though on the on one side, you're leaving room for agreeing with them. On the other side, you're saying it's potentially innocent. Um, right. Phoebe, do you have anything to your take on this? It's both. I really think that it's playing that same game of of that line between the fiction and the reality. I think that, I think when you're a kid, when you engage in those types of games, like you, you wouldn't do it if you knew that it was, you wouldn't do it as like a 25 year old, but you still know that it, it is actually stimulating in one way or another. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not doing it just, I, I, I don't know, but I, I, it really, it really does bring me back to that original question. And also just that, I guess it's just, for me, it's more about like the confusion of all of it. There's so much confusion, not only in that instance with the sister, but there's also just a lot of confusion in the Abraham and Tarot reading of it. I don't think that they necessarily know what they're doing. Which <laughs> I don't think they know why they're reading it, except as their own narcissistic, I need to do this. They've become obsessed with it. I think that that may even be why it's called the Wolfman's Magic Word. It's like a trance that they've been under and they're almost mm -hmm. trying to cure themselves. Which is why, you know, it's, you have a 200 page book, but half of our introductions, yeah. which, which is pretty rare. I mean, I know that we're not going to talk about Derrida because that, that's its own freaking headache mm -hmm. infinity, but Derrida has a very specific read on what they're doing in terms of cryptology. You know, for him, it's like an elevation deconstruction, yada, yada, yada. But then you, you have like the Nicholas Rand introduction, which becomes this strange literary theory. Yeah. You know, and he and he how he's understanding this lens which they have created or this language game or this or this language plateau of something that they've created is he's like, this is not about psychoanalysis. This is about literature and this is about timelines and this is about notions of origin. And, you know, and then Derrida has an architectural rendering of it. And, and, and Derrida's is more about the theoretical body. I come away from this with this sense of, of the confusion between fiction and nonfiction and, and where do you go from here? Like, is, is cryptology something that you can use to psychoanalyze their next patient? Could this work on, on me if I were to go in? What's, do you know what I mean? Not, not to make it too simple or whatever, but. Are you fucked up enough? That would be my question, right? I mean. We, that's, that's our next pod episode. I, should, I, yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't underestimate you. I'm sorry. I, but go on, go on. No, but it's, I mean, I don't think I'm not as fucked up as the Wolfman. At least I don't think so. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm misremembering my early trauma or something. <laughs> who the, who the fuck knows? I mean, yeah. Do, do each of us have our, have our own crypts? Yeah. Right? right. That also is why I first became really into the crypt because I was convinced when I was younger that I, that I had my own crypt. And I was trying to understand the crypt in order to, I guess, break my own crypt, or maybe it just was an excuse to cement it even further. I, I do, I think that at least Derrida is saying that everyone has their own crypt. Yeah. But, I, yeah. To some extent, I think he's saying that. I mean, that kind of goes to Lacan's negativity of lack and so forth a little bit, perhaps, right? It's kind of like this unknowable portion of the subject that right. can't be signified, the real or whatever, right? That's the yeah, sort I mean, of mystery we can only kind of paw around. We can sort of feel in the dark for around that sort of central lack or negativity and subjectivity. 
mean, for them, they seem to be saying that, so there is a quote unquote seduction, a secondary seduction of the sister onto the, the older sister of the, the younger brother. And they want to say for, for it to mean as much as it is, for it to be able to take on the role of encrypting Tourette, it had to involve the adult. I mean, I think that that, I'm not, I'm not I can play devil's advocate, but I'm, I guess I'm trying to say what they're suggesting. And that, you know, that implicates the father. I said to, to Coop last week that, that it's very possible that it could have been someone like the uncle that we hear about who had severe obsessive compulsive neuroses and died with, with those unresolved. Whether or not, I mean, we do know that a lot of times they seem to have an extended family and that they had the two country estates. This is in the early childhood and that a lot of family members would come and stay at these estates. So it does seem like, it does seem like possibly, now I'm just hypo, hypothetically, that if we take their notion that an adult has to be implicated in order for the sexual games of the, the sister and the brother to have the kind of effect it did, is it possible that it wasn't necessarily the father or only the father? Because that's another option. But is it possible that it could have been an uncle or some other? Or the older cousin, right? Oh, well, we do have the story of the older cousin who's 10 years older. But even in that story or the way that the story is told to Wolfman, who relates it from the cousin, the cousin says that, again, Anna, the sister, is the active one. Right. She's the one that pulls it out. So that still seems like a learned behavior from, from an adult. But my question, you know, hypothetically, it could be an uncle. We'll never know. Does it have to be the father? It would seem so based on how they reconstruct it. But mm -hmm. the third stage, obviously, if we accept that the, that the father has a hypothesis that the father is the adult responsible for seducing Anna, the sister, then the next stage is the question of verifying the allegations, right? And this is where the conflict between Nanya, the English governess, and also the mother this all becomes this complex center around these, these three feminine figures. And then the fourth stage is the outbreak of a scandal and a scandal to be covered up, to be uh, a secret. Via makeup or tucking or et cetera, right? Yeah. And, and that, that for them, this is the interesting thing though. If you take all those four stages, for them, the fourth one has to be real in order for the crypt to encrypt the, for them that can't be merged with fantasy, even if the other three possibly can be tinged with it or something, right? So there, for them, I think that there has to be like a point at which the real or reality starts. Because as I said earlier, metapsychologically or topographically, they redefine reality elsewhere as that which topographically has these effects that cause a shift. Whereas fantasy resists that and kind of tries to set up an inertia to it. Hmm. Interesting. Whether or not we agree with their definitions, it is. That it also is goes to that kind of liminal space to in between fiction and fantasy or real or whatever, right? That yeah, we've kind of harped on a bit. 
Right, right. And I guess that that's that that becomes my I guess that's my question is this. We're almost faced with two different primal scenes and which one do we put more metapsychological store by? Is it the the 18th month old infant before act language acquisition, you know, shitting in his pants because he he's like aroused or wants to disrupt the mother and the father having sex, right? Or is it who knows when around that time before, obviously before three and a half when he starts being seduced by the sister, is he the witness to to something between his father and and the sister. I think for them, for Abraham and Turok, the way that they work through the material, they want to offer this as a vying alternative to the primal scene. And I think that that's where their reading at least piques my interest and makes me rethink the whole thing in a new light. But I'll, I'll kind of pause for, for you guys to, to comment. I was actually just, I was just looking through morning or melancholia again, and I, I, I saw the word magic, which is a word that just doesn't come up in, in, in the Wolfman's magic word, but they say, but the fantasy of incorporation merely simulates profound psychic transformation through magic. It does so by implementing literally something that has only figurative meaning, which I think is just like totally fascinating. That, you know, the fantasy of incorporation, which is basically the building of the crypt, it's just this very profound misreading or mishearing of a certain type of irony, which is metaphor. It almost goes back to then using that fantasy of incorporation, the magic, which is turning the figurative into the into what is literal or even vice versa, turning the literal into what is figurative. That's almost the inspiration for cryptonomy itself which is kind of taking these actions which have happened or the dreams or the things that you have seen and turning them into a type of figuration of language and also also through language. Even if it's true, even if there's truth to it, and even if they're like, oh, we figured it out, we, we know why he was so fucking crazy. It's also, I think that more than that, it doesn't even have to do with the Wolfman anymore. And they even say that it's, it's more of just kind of an experimental it's an experiment in language in seeing, oh my God, what's that? What's the language that people want to create that everyone will Esperanto. know how to speak? Yeah, it's Esperanto. It's kind Esperanto. of like a psychoanalytic Esperanto. Yeah. Which is how, how can you communicate beyond simply one individual tongue? You know, there are two points about incorporation as constituting the crypt, the demetaphorization, right? So taking literally what is figurative and then objectivation where you pretend or somehow psychically experience suffering. It's not an injury to oneself, but an injury to what one has entombed, whom one has entombed in oneself, right? The identifications of here from Wolfman, the sister, the father, the therapist, with the capital T and S and F and, and somewhere in there too, one would assume is entombed the the mother, not some of these other ancillary figures like Matrona, like Nanya, the governess. So all these different identifications. This notion that the magic word has to be protected and can't be uttered, even if it would 
somehow lead to this a magical orgasm or even if it constitutes the fantasy space for the possibility of orgasm in a transcendental sense but one protects the sister one protects the father still even though they are dead they are you know Derrida says dead safe but in me right you know this keeping them safe from the secret being exposed and of course Derrida has ways of putting it that I think are are really helpful when he's talking about the it's the very staging of the tribunal right it's the very staging of the the call to testify the very staging of the juridical apparatus that is sort of internalized and threatens the secret that causes the crypt to almost harden in and reify and and redouble upon itself anyway I was just going to say, it's not Tiret, which is the magic word. It's not that you say Tiret and that's going to open sesame. You kind of, you open the crypt to get to the magic word. Mm -hmm. The magic word is more for the analyst in order to understand it as the original thing. Yeah, as though open sesame had spawned like a hydra, all these different heads and different tongues, right? That, that we had to reconstruct through the the dream work and uh, yada, yada, yada. It does seem like to perform cryptonomy, we have to become obsessed with each individual case. It seduces us too and enthralls us, insourcells us, as we might say. We have to dedicate that. Otherwise- It, ins- it incels us, what? Incels. It yeah, it, it bewitches us. If we aren't bewitched, I don't think we can even begin the work of unlocking the crypt. So it does, it seems like it takes uh, a lot of dedication. And as we said earlier, it takes new methods of listening. Coop, I I wanted to let you air your grievance if you so chose about your your enjoyment or lack thereof. The Wolfman case, yeah, I'm not as enamored with the Wolfman case as I am with Schraber or even the Ratman in particular and i don't know it's too nuanced it's too yeah it's it's too nuanced it's too specific i'm interested in the more the broader i guess elements and that's why i had so much fun when we talked about the little theoretical lines of flight that go to libidinal economy from the wolfman i can see why you would love this because of all the sort of it's mixing up this sort of semiotic psychoanalysis it's mixing up I think also translation, mm-hmm. et cetera, yeah. um, because you are in a way using a cipher from a certain standpoint when you're trying to translate from one language to another, right? There's almost this, you have to kind of come up with your own sort of keyword or lodestone or right. keystone. The Rosetta kind of, Stone. The right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah. Cause you're not even really translating from one to another. You're, you're like transforming in between languages. It is the cracks that we discussed earlier. The and gaps, I guess that, yeah. The fragments, which of course I, is very, Lacan loves that shit, you know? Yeah. I guess I, I guess I misunderstood you. I didn't realize that the Wolfman case, I think it's probably just at this point that we've, we've done so many case histories. It's uh, the, well, the, the facts of the case, I don't think for me, at least we're not particularly of interest as gotcha. much gotcha. as obviously the rat man was very compelling because it was a lot less dense, but there yeah. was a lot of sexual intrigue, shocking moments. I mean, I guess the sister 
the early childhood sexuality right. stuff is relatively shocking in a sense, but I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't build the same – just didn't have the same appeal as Schreiber or the Ratman directly within the facts of the case. Now, there's a lot of like – you know, we spent a good three and a half hours last week yeah. digging into the libidinal economics of it. So I think that that's part of what we've all been kind of talking about a little bit is – you know, what can we learn, not just from the case and the supplement, but also the Wolfman's magic word and what can we take from it without it having to be reduced merely to the case itself. Yeah. And I think that that's where it is very fruitful and, and probably still more that could be unpacked. Yeah. Now I did like this whole, there's like a whole metonymy almost that I kind of come up with in following powdering the nose, obscuring the face, obscuring the nose. The nose, in a sense, has a certain phallic element to it. Yep. So I think that that obscuring the nose goes to the obscuring of the penis, the becoming woman element yep. of or potential for the wolfman, the tucking element, right? The obscuring of the penis, the castration sort of connotations as well. That's really all I had, I think. The nose is definitely a phallus metaphor or a phallic object you know chinatown i guess would be the most obvious example oh yeah good good yeah very nice right where he gets the detective the detective who knows or who ostensibly knows he gets (laughs) his nosy he's also nosy and then he gets his he gets his nose cut and then you can and immediately after his nose is cut he loses all of his knowledge and he also loses all of his masculinity castration boom right exactly you lose it once the nose becomes a hole or has the wound and the wolfman is obviously obsessed with covering up the, the front the front any. bottom the wound the wound right. that's threatened by the by anya right uh nanya nanya oh that's interesting i like that good catch and they and, and abraham and Turok do make the connection between one nose and nose nose with a k and so one they, nose or many noses right or nose, <laughs> one or, or nose. many noses <laughs> yeah, they, they, that was perfect, Phoebe. Do you have any, do you have any last thoughts on um, anything you, you want to add to uh, to just this or maybe even say something about the Derrida stuff since we didn't spend too much time on it? You know, any, anything you want? Oh, wow. I don't have too much to say. I, I think that the Derrida essay is a whole other world. I, I actually think the Derrida essay is the most interesting part of the Wolfman's Magic world. But I think that that's just because I am really obsessed with, as I was saying earlier, with kind of an architectural deconstruction. I guess taking literally Derrida's metaphors of building and, and unbuilding and deconstructing. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that cryptonomy or T-Red or any of this, I actually don't think that it, it is anything to do with psychoanalysis. I think that that's, that's its own, it's living in, a, in, in, in its own created crypt of the ostensibility of psychoanalysis. And what it's actually doing is it's inventing a new way to, to, to read and to listen. But it shies away from that under the auspice of obsession with this case. Oh, I like that. The, yeah. the, the case then becomes, again, becomes material for, uh, for reading and listening. There's this incredible essay by, by Levinas about where the Messiah is 
and I, he kind of, he pretends that the Messiah is at the leper colony, right? And you'll know who the Messiah is because instead of taking off all of his bandages and cleaning his wounds and putting them on, the Messiah is only taking his bandages off one by one so he can be ready. That always strikes me in these cases of openness and in these cases of having of wounds and pores, I mean, the nose and the pores, because it's, it's this fragmentation of the wound. It's this fragmentation of the whole. It's this not doing it all together all at once, but it's this, it's this notion of taking it one, one by one. Not that the Wolfman is the Messiah or anything, but I just, I, I love that Levinas just says that the Messiah does it one by one instead of, instead of all together. That maybe doesn't have anything to do with this conversation, but well, the Wolfman does align himself. He does identify with Christ. Yeah. So I think there is a, at least somewhat of a. He's born nice. on Christmas Day. He identifies with oh, Christ, man. and I do think that this may be also why Abraham and Turok refer to salvation in relation to him. Your excursus on the Messiah actually wasn't far off at all. I'm trying to remember exactly. I know Daredot talks a little bit about it, but they too talk about and beginning of chapter one. I mean, Christ is penetrated, right? He has the wound in the side that gushes the water. I mean, come on. And the wrists. Do you? Yeah, penetrate on the wrists. You see? But you you know what I'm saying when the... (laughs) Oh, the, the, the... Is that a vagina? That's the Christ wound. And yes, it's also a vagina. There you go. Maybe it's like a Rorschach test. test. I, uh, I'm, I guess that's my atheism. Uh, <laughs> no, no, Christ's wound is the, I mean, I have a whole theory that Christ is like genderqueer, is the original genderfuck, because right. they are portrayed as being a man, but they also, they also have the yonic side wound. And then mm-hmm. the resurrection, I think, is actually Christ giving birth to themselves. I think that that again, mm. that again, Hyperstitioning his, his own birth. <laughs> I mean, that again, according to Wolfman, um, you know, we, we talked about, I talked about in our discussions with me and, me and Koopa, I mean, I talked about how Freud not only seems to queer Wolfman by emphasizing more so on his desire to be fucked by his father, because normally with the Oedipus complex, he's going to emphasize the boy wants to fuck mother, his mother. Yeah blah, blah, blah. But with Freud, he kind of queers him that way. But in, in the very beginning of the case history, it's he should have been, he's such a calm little boy while the, the girl is so active and rambunctious that she should have been born the boy. He should have been born the, the girl. Um, and in Wolfman's Magic Word in chapter two, they say the very beginning of the chapter, the Wolfman's drama remains incomplete for its hero, but once set in motion, its action cannot be stopped. It must proceed in us inevitably to its final outcome. And here are dissatisfaction spurred on by a providential deus ex machina, expounds, imagines, dreams. An irresistible force pulls us to save the analysis of the Wolfman, to save ourselves with time. The fourth act opens within us, stretches before us, and in us comes to fulfillment, bringing salvation. What the fuck, right? But so the, the stuff about Levinas and Messiah, the stuff about him identifying with Christ, I mean, Wolfman is a Messiah figure, right? He's a Christ figure. Total Capricorn. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean, since I'm astrologically illiterate? Well, Christ was a Capricorn. Okay. And, and uh, the Wolfman <laughs> is, is also a Capricorn. There you go. Yeah. 
They're very uh, outgoing. They're, they're very oh, okay. outgoing. They're outgoing. Very gotcha. social, outgoing, super weird, usually get their way. Christ has his own crypt, right? But he's not in there. Does Christ have a crypt? Uh, well, you call it a tomb, right? A womb. But the, but the it's empty, a womb. It's the empty, it's the empty crypt, right? It's the empty tomb. The empty womb. And, and or wound. Womb, wound, tomb. Yeah, so... But who knows? I mean, like in terms of Abraham and Turok, Christ's you know, crypt would be something else. But I was just thinking of the, you know, the finding the, the tomb empty, right? It's this big revelation that Christ has risen, etc. Christ transcends their own crypt. What leads to the to the resurrection could be the the finding of their own magic word in order to 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 externalize the crypt. And to transcend it, and that's that's how you reach salvation. Scripture, not scripture. <laughs> scripture. There you go. I like that. It's a good pun. Scripture. Coop, do you have any final thoughts, or you guys can keep? We can keep talking. I just uh, I'm gonna smoke one last cig as we can kind of burn the the midnight oil. Final thoughts. Yeah. I've said everything I want to say. I thought it was nice to end with Christ, but Phoebe, I, I'd love for you to have the the last <laughs> word. No, I'm good. That's it. That's all. Would you like to tell us where we can find your podcast? Yeah. Once again, tell us the name of your podcast and 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 uh, maybe your Twitter handle if you want people to find you and follow you. Well, if one of you listeners loves this conversation but finds yourself asking, how does it relate to Kim Kardashian? <laughs> you should check out my podcast, Money Can't Buy You Class, which is on Apple Music. Apple Podcasts and also Spotify. My Twitter handle is sad underscore porous underscore grad. Check it out. Check it out. Money Can't Buy You Class is not a, it's not a classist dig. It's the name of an incredible pop song by one of the original Housewives of New York, Luann Deliceps, if anyone was wondering. <laughs> hmm. I did not know that, so I learned something today. It's a fantastic song. It really is. But yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This was this was fun, and I really I really dig what you're doing. <laughs> I'm so glad you you joined us because this is a a very difficult text and complex, and you know we we didn't even scratch the surface on all the Russian and German stuff because it's kind of hard to do on a podcast. It's not the best format for it, right? And would be a little maybe pedantic and and boring, or just would be hard to follow too. But I thought that. It was honestly, I think that it was better the way that we um, were able to discuss some of the broader movements in the text. I'm glad we had you, since you're a, a veteran of this text as well. You could you could make sure that we kind of stay on track, stay stay following the lines of the of the different crypts and stuff. So, I mean, that's honestly when I heard that this was one of your favorite books or Chris said it was your favorite. So I was, I thought he was being facetious. I, I totally, when I posted about, we're going to be doing this text in the future. And he's like, he's like, Oh, that's my girlfriend's favorite. You know, book. I was like, no, you're dating a freak. Well, no, no. It's just, it's just, first of all, that's a coincidence, right? The small world kind of thing, but mm -hmm. it seemed like a joke. It's see, just that it just seemed too, coincidental too random and and um but yeah i mean i think that that's i think that that's why i mean it was like well she's also got 
her own podcast. She's got podcasting experience. Um, mm-hmm. And she's, since this is her favorite book, let's, I just thought it was a match made in heaven. Yeah. Or hell or, or whatever. I'm actually like famous for my epic misreadings of <laughs> I was, this is just a stupid thing, but I wrote my, my undergrad thesis partly about the Wolfman's Magic Word. That's awesome. I would have gotten the thesis prize, but I epically misread Morning and Melancholia. That yes. is not an easy text, though. Even it is if it's, not. Even if it's short, even the authors, I believe, in Shell and the Colonel, in one of those essays, probably Morning or Melancholia, talk about it as a dense, difficult text. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's stuck, but yeah. He does have that, that movement at, towards the end of the text where he starts to talk about incorporation, where he then starts to talk about the splitting of the ego, how the ego sets up a critical agency or within the ego, right? It sets up this little critical side to like, to castigate the ego. Um, he does all this very quickly without really coming. It kind of comes out of fucking left field and without it real. I mean, this is prior to obviously him developing the super ego proper, but he's, you could see that he's starting to, give us a little bit of the crumbs of that theory with uh, how conscience develops, how the melancholic is able to kind of turn against himself, you know, intrapsychically and how that that's this, you know, some of the other stuff in the essay isn't as difficult, but I find some of that, which is the crypt proper, which is what I think really constitutes what's going on here. I found that when I, cause I reread that too this week and I took detailed notes and I'm telling you, it's most of those notes were packed in those two or three pages towards the end that I found extremely difficult to wrap my head around. So, you know, I mean, it's that's just the way it is. Freud's hard. He's really rough to read. It's all the cocaine. Freud rubs you the wrong way. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, exactly. I always wonder what it would have been like to be one of his patients. I feel like I totally would have cathected onto him. Yep. He would have used that in the transference. I know. Um, He's so sexy. Like, I really do think that he's sexy. You know, Wolfman writes now, he could be being very polite in his older age and he knows it's going to be for publication. But the way he describes Freud and meeting him, you know, he says that that, his first meeting, it, he was impressed by the guy's stature. He's an impressed, he cuts a good figure and that he was immediately like calmed by his presence. Amen. And, and I thought that that was a really interesting way. I thought Wolfman, I was reading the recollections because it is in your volume too. You have it. And Coop, I sent you that PDF, but uh, he, he does write very glowingly. I was, I was looking, I was hoping for some shade. I was hoping for him to talk some shit. And he doesn't. He really just seems to think Freud's a lovely guy and super smart and all the things that one can imagine. I mean, on the other hand, I think that his, the popular stereotype of Freud with the Oedipus complex is he's a fucking dirty old man. And, and you know, he, he thinks the worst of us. And, he, and, and you see his pictures. It's still in vogue, it seems, to have that super serious, no smiling. And, and so it's almost like he's trying too hard in the pictures where he's kind of like, mm, he's like frowning at you. But from what I got from the Wolfman's own recollections of Freud, where he seems to, Freud seems to have a calming figure, but also he, he, he kind of bends over backwards to give him praise for being infinitely patient 
I mean, how many years have they spend together for, you know, patient and unbiased. And, um, you know, it's really only in the Ratman case. It seems like Ratman must have been more of an asshole than the Wolfman because Freud kind of talked some shit to him as uh, Coop and I discussed. <laughs> but, you know, in any case, Phoebe Kaufman, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. And uh, Money Can't Buy You Class, find it wherever you can stream your podcasts. We'll put a link in the show notes as well. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. If you guys enjoyed this, do you have a Patreon, Phoebe? No, I I don't I don't like making money. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean money money is shit as we've already discussed. Yes. But dear listener, <laughs> you can always send us a buck a month. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Cooper, do you want to sign us out? This will be Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins and the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour signing off for the week.